Those of you remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn in your copy of God's word to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This morning, um, a weighty psalm. Um, I know that technically you're not supposed to have favorite passages in the Bible. And I have indicated that there's a couple other psalms that rank way up toward the top for me. Psalm 51 has got to at least be in my personal top 10, which seems kind of weird when you really look at the content of Psalm 51. Interesting, you hear a bit of a rasp in my voice this morning. Um, I felt completely fine yesterday. There was nothing wrong with me. And this morning woke up with a little, and um, I started thinking about the day, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, I'm preaching through Psalm 51. I started thinking back on it this morning. There's not ever been a time in my life where I've taught on or preached on Psalm 51 and not had something like this happen to me. I feel like it's spiritual warfare kind of thing because this psalm is aggressively transformative. If you really listen to what it has to say. And it's difficult for me personally to go through this psalm just on my own, let alone publicly, because I always find it profoundly convicting. And so beginning in verse one, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And I want to pause because normally I just read through the whole text and then we pray and then we get into the sermon proper. And I want you to look at your outline. Point one, I want to go ahead and make a point of the sermon before we read the rest of the text and pray. A Holy Spirit-inspired indictment of David. In our English Bibles, we usually skip what I read every week because it's a, a, a subscript. In the Hebrew Bible, it is verse 1 of the Hebrew text. It is in the... This is not an English add-in to give you context. This is part of the inspired text of the Word of God. Verse 1, all your subscripts in your Psalms are verse 1 of the Hebrew text. So David marked out, David wrote this. This is David's song and David's prayer because of his sin. The sin that he committed with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband, to try and cover up his sin. David marked out his sin as an example for all time. He didn't have to put this in here. He could have just said like he does in a lot of the other ones, a Psalm of David. And he could have stopped there. But instead, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, marking out For all time, anyone who would ever sing this psalm again, use this psalm in corporate worship, read their Bibles, would be reminded of David's profound sin that led to him committing adultery, that then ultimately led him to committing murder. I want you to pause and think about the impact Of that. The king, the very first real true king, not Saul, but the first real true king of the nation of Israel, the one who is the type and the shadow of Jesus Christ, the king of the great covenant, David himself marks out forever his sin in the pages of Holy Scripture. What a profound example for the rest of us. That the king himself is not above reminding everyone that if we are not cautious and if we presume upon the grace of God, we too can fall into cataclysmic levels of sin and rebellion. Even someone who was called by God himself, a man after God's own heart. And every year. When they would come around to this psalm and the different forms of worship where it would show up. 
And they still do it today. Thousands of years later. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And as if that weren't enough, Christmas is coming. I know, ouch, I'm sorry, but it is. And we'll be reading through things in Matthew and the story of Jesus' birth. And you'll come across the genealogy that Matthew writes out. And it talks about and David, who gave us Solomon by way of Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. It happens to him in the New Testament, too. And I just want you to hold that in your mind. How serious that is. That he would write that down. Knowing that likely this would be used by the Jewish people in their worship forever. He didn't have to do that. Let's read. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. And done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise by your favor. Do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in a righteous sacrifice and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the humility of men like David. To on paper. For use for public consumption. Confess and repent of their sins. Father, thank you for the grace that we see. It should be an encouragement to us when we are facing down our own sins to repent. We thank you for the grace that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. So a couple of things that we want to see. First. We want to see David's cry for mercy. In the first six verses, there's this incredible cry for God to be merciful. He asked for three things of God in the course of these verses in relationship to what God needs to supply. And then he talks about the two things that he feels that need to happen to him when God supplies these. And so he starts out, it's grace Mercy and compassion. 
And friend, I will just pause here as an aside to say, if God never gives you anything else except for grace and mercy and compassion, you have been richly blessed. David was the king of Israel. He wanted physically for nothing. And in spite of all of his riches and all of his power and all of his prominence and all of his public prestige, he wanted grace and mercy and compassion from God. Because he knew none of those other things could save him. Look at what it says. Be gracious to me, O God. Friend, I want to I start here. I just want to dive in. We're not preaching today. We're meddling today. If you find yourself staring down sin in your life. And you're wrestling with sin. And you're struggling with sin. And you start anywhere else but the grace of God to try and deal with your sin. You will fail and sin will have victory over you. Because there is no other place to start. To have victory over sin in your life. Than the grace of God. And this is where David starts. He says, be gracious to me, O God. And how does he want God to be gracious to him? According to your loving kindness. Hebrew word for loving kindness, kesed. Apologize to the front row with that. Kesed. It's a really unusual word. It's very difficult to translate. It gets translated a lot of different ways in a lot of different English translations. And it carries a lot of meat behind it. It's really hard to just give a a singular functional definition to this word. But a good attempt at it is this is the, the wrath bearing, forgiving, grace filled, transforming love of God. That's what this means. When we think about all the stuff that we studied in Leviticus and we think about God's perspective of his people when those sacrifices are made on those altars and when those burnt offerings are brought and the guilt offerings are brought and the sin offerings are brought and the wave offerings are brought and and the drink offerings are brought and the peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings and all of the things that would happen in that tabernacle. All of that was a demonstration of the kessid of God, the loving kindness, the mercy filled, repentant gracious, uh, wrath-removing love of God. That's what this is. God, I want you to be gracious to me. I want you to show me your grace through that kind of mercy, that kind of love. It's mercy-filled love, loving kindness. You say, well, why does that matter? Because mercy is getting what you don't deserve And it being for your benefit. And we don't like to talk about that. We like to talk about justice. Getting a person getting what they deserve and typically that being for their penalty. Having to pay for their sins, pay for their wrongdoings, pay for what they did. You need to pay for what you did. I demand justice. And then we get mad when a court shows the person that we want justice to be brought from mercy. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, but it's going to be for your benefit. You don't, friend, hear me this morning. You don't deserve to be forgiven. You don't deserve to receive the grace of God. 
You don't deserve the Lord Jesus Christ to drink the cup of God's wrath and to bear your sins on the cross and to exchange his righteousness for your wretchedness and then to clothe you with his glory and to crown you with his life and to seat you in heavenly places on a throne with him and invite you to his banquet table and to become co-heirs with him so that his father calls you his children and loves you with the love that he loves his own son, Jesus You and I do not deserve that. It's called mercy. And that's how David is praying. He said, God, be gracious to me. According to your wrath, bearing, merciful love. And as if that weren't enough. According to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. So not only do I want you to show me grace, not only do I want you to show me mercy by way of this grace that you have for me, but because you are a compassionate God, I don't want you to just forgive me. I want you to blot all of my sin out as if it had never happened. That's what that means, by the way. When you blot something out, they didn't have white out back then. And they certainly, uh, some of the kids in the room look real confused even with white out. So, sorry. They didn't have, you know, delete on the computer screen. When you were writing something in the ancient times and you wanted it to not be there anymore, those materials were expensive. You just didn't get down to the bottom of a scroll sheet and say, oh, I messed this word up. Let's tear the whole thing up and start all over again. No, no. Too much time, too much energy, too many resources have been poured into that. What you did is you took whatever you were writing with and you scrubbed it across those words to blot them out as if they were never there. And then you put the right thing in its place. God, according to your compassion, blot out my transgressions as if they've never been there. And then what does he want to have happen to him when God responds in this way with grace and with mercy and compassion? David wants to be washed and to be cleansed. Notice what it says here. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. David wants the whole gamut wiped away. He wants his iniquity wiped away. He wants his sin wiped away. He wants his transgression blotted out. By the way, that's the three main words in Hebrew for various kinds of sinning. Moral sinning, foolish sinning, sinning against God's covenant and law. David covered the whole spectrum. He said, any kind of sinning that can be committed, I want you to forgive me of it. I want you to cleanse me of it. I want you to wash me of it. I want you to blot it out. I want it to not be there anymore. And friends, hear me this morning. That's how we have to feel about our sin. We can't coddle it. We can't play with it. We have to hate it. We have to long for it not to be there. We want it gone. No matter the cost. And then David does something remarkable. He addresses the true nature of the offense And and I'm just going to be honest. I try to be super transparent when I'm up here preaching. And I try to let you know stuff in the Bible that bothers me. Because I spent a whole bunch of years sitting where you are. Hearing stuff from the Bible. Reading stuff in the Bible. Listening to sermons from the Bible. And in my mind going, I'm bothered by that. Is is no one else bothered by what just got said? Like, I haven't, I have, excuse me, Lord, I have an issue with what you just wrote there. And so I've tried to be a guy who tells you when I have issues with what God says in his word. God's right, by the way. But it's just honesty. Because some of you are going to hear this and you're going to go, I've got a problem with this. 
And I want you to know that you're not a weirdo for feeling that way. All right. Against you, you only, I have sinned. What? I suspect Uriah feels differently now that he's dead. I suspect Bathsheba feels differently now that she's lost a child from this inappropriate relationship with David. I feel that the captains who knew that David wanted to kill Uriah and help make that happen feel differently about who David sinned against. I'll just be honest, it kind of feels like a cop out on David's part. I didn't do anybody else wrong. God just sinned against you. It's a whole bunch of people in the wake of David's carnage who would seem to disagree with the statement. I'll just be honest, it bugs me a little bit. That this is how David is praying. That David's just bypassing all of the real lives that he has destroyed and going straight to the source and just saying, God, against you and you only have I sinned, done what is wrong in your sight. And I'll tell you, this bothered me for a long, 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 long time. Until finally the verse clicked for me. Hopefully it'll click for you. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Second half of the verse, it was there in front of my face all these years and I just missed it, missed it, missed it, missed it. And then a few years ago, it just slammed me right in the forehead like, hey, dummy, it's right here. Black ink, white paper. So that you, God, are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. What was God's judgment against David? It goes back to the true verse one in the Hebrew text. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, the word from the Lord, God's judgment, you are righteous when you judge, you're blameless when you judge, you're justified when you speak. What was God's spoken judgment against David? You killed Uriah and you slept with Bathsheba and it's wickedness because you violated the image of God in those image bearers for your own selfish gain. And then you tried to cover it up because you presumed on my grace because you thought since you were the king, you were above my law and I'm the true king and you're my representative king and you're supposed to be showing the whole world my glory. And instead you have shown the world the kingdom of Satan in your actions because you killed a man and you were with a woman who was not your wife and you have wreaked havoc on this nation who is supposed to show my glory to the other nations and now you've made our nation a laughing stock. You've belittled my name and you've destroyed the image in other people. Ooh. Yeah, David's not bypassing the blame that he has in murdering a man and committing adultery. David is acknowledging that the reason why it's treacherous to murder a man and commit adultery is because it violates the glorious image of God that has been given to humanity to show his beauty and his splendor as covenant people to the world. David, listen, put a real fine point on it. David marred the gospel with his sin. Not only did he wreck the lives of those people that he sinned against, but he ran the great risk of never being able to stand up and declare the glory of God again with any measure of value or integrity. And I think David came to recognize the weight of that. Man, I wrecked some lives. And God, I wrecked my ability to demonstrate your glory to the world. And I don't know, I don't know how I get back from this. But notice what God wants. You see here that David affirms that he was brought forth in iniquity and sin his mother conceived me. He talks about being a sinner both by nature and by choice. But what God desires for us is truth 
in the innermost being. The hidden part is to, to, to come to know wisdom. And so David has a desire for transformation. Friends, hear me this morning. You will never live in the victory that Jesus has for you in your sins if you don't actually desire transformation. The problem with so many people that I've encountered and a great problem that I've had in my own life is that we give lip service to the desire to have victory over our sins when in fact we're deeply in love with our sin. We like how our sin makes us feel. We find all sorts of cute ways to justify our sin. And we don't really want to be transformed from the inside out. Made to be something different. Made to be something new. Made to reflect the image of Jesus. And until you desire transformation from the inside out. Wisdom and knowledge in the innermost places. That that hidden revealed truth of God that comes only from gospel recognition and gospel transformation. You will never long nor have truth. True victory over sin because you will want life your way rather than Christ's way. And David longed for transformation. He wanted to be made different. And there's a whole bunch of verbs that run through here. And I've got them kind of listed in blitz form for you in your outline. And we'll just we'll run through them. First, David wanted to be purified and washed. Purify me. With hyssop. This is the language of the sacrificial system, the cleansing of the altar. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So David wanted to be purified, and he wanted to be washed. He also wanted to be made to hear joy and gladness. Notice here in the next verse make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you listen to this. Wow. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. I want to give you a little insight into what that's about. David was a shepherd. That was his trade. They brought him from the fields as a shepherd to become the king. He writes Psalms about being a shepherd. Psalm 23 obviously comes to mind. Let me tell you a little bit, particularly in this culture, what they would do with a wandering sheep, which is what David is here. He's a wanderer. He's wandered off. So sheep would wander off and the shepherd would go and find it and he'd get it and he'd bring it back. And the sheep would wander off again and he would go get it and bring it back. And so if a sheep showed itself to have a habit, a habitual uh, lifestyle of wandering away from the flock and putting itself in danger. The shepherd in love for the sheep would break one of his legs, carry him back on his shoulders and tend to him in his pain until his leg healed. And then when he finally was healed enough to walk again on his own, Normally, the sheep wouldn't wander off anymore. Because he remembered how horrible of an experience it was to have his bones broken and to be completely helpless for that season of time. Even dumb sheep would know, I don't want to do that again. And it seems almost vile that a shepherd would do that. But in his great love for this sheep that kept wandering off and putting itself in danger, he'd break a bone. And so David is using this picture from a shepherd's life. And he's saying, let the bones of mine that you have broken rejoice. God, when you are hard on me because of my sin, let me delight in the pain that comes from your hand of discipline so that I do not lose my very soul. Jesus said something very similar. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul and hell. David also wanted a hiding and a blotting out to take place. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. And he uses this language again, a Hebrew form of repetition, and blot out all of my iniquities. Friends, do you hear the request that he's making of God? 
God, you are all knowing. There is nothing outside of your gaze. You are fully aware of everything that happens in your world. Both those things that are active outward and the hidden inner thoughts of man. And God, I so hate my sin. I so want transformation from my sin. I so want deliverance from my sin that I, as a mere mortal human being, am asking you, the great sovereign God of the universe, who knows all and sees all and remembers all, to forget my sin. I want you, God, to do something that seems contrary to your very nature as God. I don't want you to remember my sin anymore. That's what it means to hide your face from something. I don't see it anymore. That's what it means as we already saw to blot it out. It's like it wasn't even there. God, I want you to forget my sin. What a request of God. The God who knows all and remembers all and forgets nothing. Who's not like a man who has to change his mind. Who's not like a man who has to be convinced. The God of Isaiah who knows the, the, ending, uh, the beginning from the end. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He has a full awareness of all the reality of history. And David dares to ask God, forget my sin. And do you know what God's response to this is elsewhere in the Psalms? For your sin to me, it's been cast out. It's been driven away from me as far as the east is from the west. And I, God promises, and I will remember it no more. Beautiful old song from long ago. They're talking about approaching God and talking about the sin that we have. And God's response in Christ is, what sin? What sin? It has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. It died with him and he was raised to newness of life for you. David makes an Impossible, remarkable request of God. God, all-knowing God, forget my sin. And all throughout Scripture, God's response is, Yes, I will remember your sin no more. David also wants for there to be creation and renewal to take place. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. David also longs for restoration and sustaining to take place. There's this tension here in verse 11. Of not being cast away from the presence of God. Not having the Holy Spirit taken from us. I feel that sometimes... The benefit of thousands of years of theology before us has made us numb to the weight and the danger of sin in our lives. Because most of us who've done deep dive of study of the nature of salvation and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and the notion of the Spirit in the Old Covenant over against the notion of the Spirit in the New Covenant, we have all this stuff and we start talking cool ivory tower stuff and we start pulling all kinds of things out of our systematic theology books. And we get to a verse like this one and say, well, David shouldn't have been afraid at all of losing the Holy Spirit because that's not something that God does. That's the sort of presumption that lets you keep living in your sin. I had a professor in seminary who said one of the most terrifying things. I remember it to this day. I, I, it'd probably be one of the last things to go as my mind slips. It was just shockingly terrifying. The entire course was the doctrine of sin. We were studying the, the notion of human sinfulness and what that did to our image and what that did to our relationship with God and why that makes the gospel such a, a powerful and potent thing. And on the very first day of that seminar, we went into the class and we were talking about the nature of sin. And he said these words. He said, listen. Every time 
someone who claims to be a Christian sins is making a declaration with their life that they might not have ever known Jesus. That they might not have ever known Jesus. That's how weighty the Christian should view their sin. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Say, Philip, you believe in loss of salvation? No, I don't. Because I believe genuine salvation will drive you to make war with your sin. I'm not saying you won't sin. I'm just saying you'll hate it when you do and you won't live in it for long periods of time. Then I will teach. After all this happens, purify, wash, make make glad, hide, uh, blot out, create, renew, restore, sustain. Then, only then, I will teach transgressors your ways. And then sinners will be converted to you. I love that word converted there in the, in the New American Standard. The word there, loosely translated, is essentially the word for repentance. Then sinners will turn back. They will repent. That's what will happen. Friends, that's what happens at conversion. Friends, that's what happens your whole Christian life. You repent. You believe. You persevere. You overcome. Rinse and repeat. You repent. You believe. You persevere. You overcome, rinse and repeat. It's in fact the whole story of the book of Revelation gets super easy when you filter it through that grid. That's what it is. Creation, fall, redemption. That's our story. And we should not get hung up on the living in our sin. We should get freed into the transformation of hating our sin. Then I will teach. Transgressors, then sinners will turn to you. And then notice what he does here. He calls for a deliverance. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. David is not shunning the fact that he sinned against other people. Why does he pray so specifically here a prayer of forgiveness of blood guiltiness? Because he had Uriah killed. And if you know the story, I'm not going to delve into the story, but if you know the story, he tried to run a little bait and switch on Uriah before he killed him. And Uriah, being the righteous man that he was, didn't fall for it. And David became so inflamed with Uriah's righteousness that it drove him to murder him. Forgive me of blood guiltiness. Oh God of my salvation. David is getting raw with his confession of sin. He's holding nothing back from his confession of sin. And then my tongue will joyfully sing. And so what does David close with? He closes with his response. David's response to God's grace. Because here's the beautiful thing. David knows that God is a God of mercy and God is a God of compassion and God is a God of grace. And that those who come to him with broken hearts, those who come to him crushed over the reality of their sin, those who come to him weeping that they have violated the covenant of God, God forgives them. And so notice what he says. Verse 15, he says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Friend, it's really hard to praise God while simultaneously violating his revealed will. Just want to throw that out there. It's really hard to declare 
in song and in speech and in utterance. Your love for the glory and grandeur of God while your life declares you care nothing for him. And notice what David says here in his response to God's grace. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm not bringing a sacrifice. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Which seems odd because we just spent all that time in Leviticus together and it seemed that whenever you sin, the thing you were supposed to do was bring an offering and bring a sacrifice. I've sinned against God to bring an offering. In fact, there's like a half a dozen or more of them that depending on what kind of sin I did determines what kind of offering I'm supposed to bring. And how much of it I'm supposed to bring and how long I'm supposed to keep the part that I don't give and what the priest is supposed to do with the part that I do give and et cetera, et cetera. And, the, you know, just just for old time's sake, what they do with the entrails. Got to throw that word out there at least once. We got all this stuff going on that seems to indicate if I want to be forgiven of my sins, I'm supposed to bring these sacrifices. And David says here, you don't want me to do that. If you want me to repent and you want to forgive me, you don't want sacrifices. That is not what you desire. What is it that God desires then for us? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friends, hear me this morning. This is going to sound so contrary in a room full of people who have come together for corporate worship as a means of grace that God has commanded that we should be obedient to. God doesn't need your worship. I think that our the uh, the opponents of Christianity kind of get it twisted sometimes. What sort of megalomaniac ego crazy has to have you worship him all the time? God doesn't need our worship. God is worthy of our worship. And God doesn't want your worship if it's clouded and muddied with all of the wretched wickedness that you're holding on to trying to serve two gods at the same time. He doesn't want you worshiping the city of man and all of the perks and all the good. He doesn't want one foot in Egypt and one foot in Zion. God does not want division in the hearts of the people who would demonstrate his worth of worship. God wants you before you come to tell the whole world how great he is to show how great he is by repenting of your sin. That's what David just said right here. If you don't like it, take it up with David. God, you don't want sacrifices and offerings. That's public worship in this time period. You don't want public worship. If it's marred with my wretchedness and my grotesqueness and my self-justification and my unwillingness to repent of my sin, what you want is for me to have a broken spirit. What you want is for me to have a broken and contrite heart. These things you will not despise. You want me to display in the innermost being that I find you most glorious, even more glorious than the sin that I'm clinging to. God does not want you to worship him while holding and cuddling your idol. I told you we're not preaching today. We're meddling. Because friends, there's so many times in my life I pick my idol up. And I pet it and I hold it and I, and I get ready to come and worship God. And like he doesn't know, I'm talking... My precious. Anyway, I, you know, th- this is what's happening. God doesn't want that. God has no desire for that whatsoever. He wants you to be broken over that thing that you love more than him. 
He wants you to repent of that thing that you that you crave more than him. He wants you to crush those things, throw those things down under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. And he wants you to come empty handed. And acknowledge, God, I have nothing to give you. That is pure and perfect and marvelous worship. Because I will fill your hands up with the greatest of blessings and abundance and transformation that your life ever had. But the hands can't be clinging to your idols. And then, David says, by your favor, by your grace, by your compassion, by your kindness, by your goodness. Do good to Zion, the place we've been talking about, the place of the demonstration of God's redemption and power and his people. Build the walls of Jerusalem. I'm going to pause here. This language of building the walls of Jerusalem. We could take it hyper literal if you want it to, but it's a metaphor. In the Old Testament, and some of you are in a Sunday school class, they were talking about Nehemiah in the Old Testament. When Nehemiah and Ezra did what they did after the captivity, and it said that the city was in disarray and the walls had been torn down, and they they were released to go and rebuild the walls. They rebuilt the walls first. Why? Because, friend, in this culture, in this time, in this day, you cannot be protected from your enemies if you don't have a wall. And what are the enemies of those who are in the covenant of God? All of the temptations that are outside of the fold, the sheepfold. The sheepfold has walls around it. For what reason? To keep the enemies out. It's not just to keep the sheep in. God, by your favor, do good to Zion. And you, God, build the walls. Listen, God has boundaries for us because he loves us. There are things that God doesn't want us to do and things that God allows us to do. And the things that he doesn't want us to do are on the other side of the wall. He's put the walls there because he loves, not because he's a restrictive God, not because he's a a party pooper, not because he's trying to steal all your fun and he's not letting be like all the other cool kids who get to do all the other stuff that they get to do. No, God has put up boundaries because of his great loving compassion for you. And when you approach that wall and you kick it over and you step out into the wilderness of danger, you are outside of where God would have you to be. And your life is at risk, spiritually speaking. And that's exactly what David did when he saw Bathsheba. He said, oh, I'm the king. I'm here. I'm doing my thing. I want her and I don't really care what that affects. I don't care. I just I'm do what I want. He kicked the wall down. And it devastated So many lives. It kept David from building the temple. When God said to David, you can't build the temple. Your son has to build the temple. You have too much blood on your hands. It wasn't because he was the king. God had given him the mandate as king to wage war against his enemies. That's called just war. That is not murder. That is not blood guiltiness. What blood did David have on his hands? He had the blood of Uriah on his hands. It kept him from building the temple. Friends, sin is devastating. Devastating. And he asks God, God, build walls of safety around Jerusalem. Put up a barricade where you can show us as your sheep the safe places we can travel to. And then, as we close, and only then will God delight in your acts of worship. Notice what it says here in verse 19. Then 
you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Friends, hear me this morning. I want to close, I want to close with this because this is, this is an encapsulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't bring offering and sacrifice or praise to make God love us, to make God forgive us, or to make God heal us. We bring these things to God because He does love us and He has forgiven us and He has healed us in Christ Jesus. I don't do things to make God love me. I do things Because God does love me. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that the great sacrifice that has been offered was the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He took our certificate of guilt and he nailed it to the cross. And he made a public spectacle of the powers and principalities, putting them to shame. Thank you that he has been declared the son of God with power through his resurrection from the dead. And that no offering, no sacrifice is needed anymore. You do not even long for it from us, God. But what you desire is that our spirits and our hearts are broken and contrite. That we are people of repentance. That we are people who acknowledge your glory. And we acknowledge that glory not just with our words, but with our very beings. Hating our sin and fleeing from it. Father, this morning, certainly and surely, there are believers here who are coddling their sin. Embracing their sin, loving their sin. Father, break hearts today. Tear down strongholds today. Convict today. Father, there are those who have come to recognize their love of their sin. And like David, they are crushed and they have thrown it down. Father, Show yourself to be gracious and merciful and compassionate. Help us, Father, there's so many, so many who walk around carrying a burden of guilt of sins that they've committed long ago that you since have blotted out and forgotten. Father, let us believe that your word is true, that you remember our sins no more. They are separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And Father, if there are those who've not ever come to an understanding of their severe condition and their sin, Father, be gracious to open up their eyes, remove the heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh and draw them graciously to you and into your kingdom through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.